0: Good morning. Good morning. Privileged to be here before you this morning. 10:55. I got an hour and five minutes. Good news. If you would go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter four, as uh, my dad read for us. I didn't realize how many verses it actually was that he had to read. So I thank him for getting through all of those verses. And we're not going to be looking at every single one of those verses, but I wanted to get a context of what we'll be looking at today, and that's particular Hebrews 4, verse 1. Let us go ahead and beseech the Lord in prayer before we begin. Our gracious Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is that we have been given the gift through Christ to call you Father for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you open eyes, open ears today to see your goodness, to see the rest that there is in Jesus Christ. For the one who is here who doesn't know you, Lord, who is wondering, would you draw them to you? And we think of particular this morning, Brother John, and just as frailty, Lord, you're the sovereign Lord. You're able to heal. And Lord, we still pray for healing, that uh, you would be pleased to intervene, Lord, and, and cause his body to heal. And most importantly, I think, Lord, is the salvation of his children, that your spirit would come to their household and that they would draw their hearts to you. We thank you and we praise your name. And it's in the great name of Jesus Christ we pray all of these things. Amen. So we'll be looking at Hebrews 4.1 today. Let me go ahead and read the first verse here. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Who loves to rest? One of the most fulfilling feelings in all of the world is to have a restful night's sleep. I think providentially last night, as I was sleeping, I had a dream that I was preaching here this morning. And oftentimes is the case when you get a little anxious or even nervous about something you're going to do, at least for me, from what I've experienced, you dream about it. And I had a dream as I was walking up through the aisle, up here to the podium. The podium was like eight feet tall. And I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to ever get up to the very top of it? So nonetheless, I still had a pretty good night's sleep, but it wasn't fully restful. And I'd say there is an issue for many people in here of having true rest. In fact, even in the United States, with all of our medical advancements, we still struggle with rest. How common is insomnia among adults? Here are the numbers. 30 to 35 percent have brief symptoms of insomnia. 15 to 20% have a short-term insomnia disorder, which lasts less than three months. And believe it or not, 10% of people have a chronic insomnia disorder, which occurs at least three times per week for at least three months. Even in our advanced society, we have problems with rest. People have a perpetual problem, most recognizably physically, but more significantly, yes, uh, yet less knowable, is their lack of spiritual rest. It's one thing to be physically rested. It's a whole other thing to be spiritually rested. And as I read Hebrews 4.1, this verse is really going to be the springboard for which we'll go backwards a little bit and we'll go forwards a little bit and to solve, hopefully today, this issue of rest. Now, just to give a little background here, the overarching theme of this particular portion of Hebrews appears to be the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross and the uh, the proceeding rest mankind may have in the finished work of Christ. There's three main portions, at least how I understood this verse. Verse 1, chapter 4, and we'll break it down into three sections. The first one is the word therefore. We'll look first and foremost at the word therefore. Then we'll look at the next section, since a promise remains of entering his rest, the promise of rest, and lastly, and probably most importantly, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Fear short of it. Now, I did title this sermon, I had to give the title on Wednesday, and I did change it a little bit since Wednesday. So I have it as the peril of nominal belief in where to find rest. That may not be the most clever title that anyone's ever come up with, but I think it's pertinent to the issue at hand. So looking here at verse 1 of chapter 4, again, we see the word, therefore. Now, for anyone who's familiar and, and reads their Bible Whenever you see the word, therefore, what do you do? You go back because it usually means it's a summation of something that the writer was writing previously. It's a conjunction. It's a connecting word from two clauses or one thought to another thought. A classic example of Romans 12, 1, Therefore, I beseech you, brethren. The first 11 chapters of Romans are dealing with really different issues. Paul sums it up in chapter 11, then goes on to a whole new subject matter from chapters twelve to sixteen. And I think we kind of see that here. But we see this word therefore, so let us go back, not just a couple of verses, but just briefly go back to the first chapter of Hebrews and see what the author is stating. We see these famous words really in tandem to John chapter one. We see Hebrews one, two to three, Who in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is the summation of chapter one? Notice the brief glimpse of the creative power of Christ, the sustaining power of Christ, and the authoritative power of Christ in the position that he occupies at the right hand of God. Chapter 1 is predominantly focused on the deity of Christ. Now, there's more things in chapter 1 we won't take time to, but that is the overarching theme of chapter 1. Chapter 2, quickly, Chapter 2 deals more specifically with the humanity of Jesus Christ. Let me go ahead and read these two verses. Hebrews 2.9 we read, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Therefore, Hebrews 2.14, we see, Therefore, since the children... Share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Chapter 1, the deity of Christ. Chapter 2, in summary, overarching, is the humanity of Christ and Christ's role on the earth. In chapter 3, there's really... The culmination point. It's the result of the deity of Christ and of the humanity of Christ. And that is the result is salvation and rest for mankind. In the first five verses, we won't take time to read it, but can be summed up as really the inferiority of the house. We'll see this word house here in the first five verses of chapter three, the word house is. The inferiority of the house, that is the prophet Moses. Moses was inferior. He was a great man, but he was inferior. Even though he was special and that he led the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, he was in the presence of God and he delivered the law to the children of Israel. Yet we see, as the author's argument in chapter 3, he was inferior. Of course, he was inferior. To that of Christ. And we see the language that he who built the house, Jesus Christ, is superior to him who is the house, that is Moses. We see Jesus speaking in similar terms in John five forty six. He says to this he says, This for if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he, Moses, wrote about me, Jesus. The inferior wrote about the superior. The truth is is that Christ, the God-man, is superior to Moses because he built the house. And don't worry, we'll define what the house is here momentarily. Christ built a house. Now, for the time being, that concludes really our first point of therefore. It concludes looking back from where we were in chapter 4, verse 1. But if you're following along, You will notice that we left out some 16 verses, verses 6 of chapter 3 all the way to uh, verses 19 of chapter 3. If you're not, we won't skip over those. We'll get back to those here in a minute. The next portion, going back to chapter 4, verse 1, really our springboard verse, the next portion is that of the promised rest, since a promise remains of entering his rest. Having established the background in the previous sections, alluded to again by therefore, what then is the promise of rest the author talks about here in verse 1? What does it mean to rest in a biblical scripture manner? In whom and what is our rest to be in? It's one thing to rest improperly. It's a whole other thing for us to rest in the proper section. I think the answer lies in. Verse 2 of chapter 4. We see this. For indeed the gospel was preached. That is the rest. The gospel. For those of us in here. The word gospel. Means good news. The rest lies not just in the word gospel. But what the gospel represents. That is the death of. Burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our rest. Looking back again to chapter 3, verse 6, where we left off and looking back, we read this. The author says, but Christ as a son over his own house and pay attention to these four words, because I think they're very pertinent to our discussion whose house we are. Whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Again, let me repeat those, those four words. Whose house we are. Why is this such an important verse in particular? Why are these four words so important to us? Because the rest we have promised to us in Jesus Christ can be found in the household of Of Christ built by his own hands and again we'll continue to solve this as we go along that's not per se the final answer but that's the beginning of the answer the house built by Christ is of course the church but the meaning is not that our faith and rest relies in the church but he that is Christ who built and is behind the church Paul says similar as he's writing to the Ephesians, as he's getting ready to leave after his long extended stay there. He says this in Acts 20, 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Listen here to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Think here. For a moment, for a moment, as uh, this morning Uncle Ray discussed in Sunday school, the, uh, the the chapters and the verses of the Bible were really made about 800 years ago and were refined over the uh, the uh, preceding centuries. But just for a second here, without uh, you know being blasphemous in any sense of the word, let's just eliminate for sake of argument verses seven to nineteen of chapter three, and this is just for purposes of our minds you have the power to scramble a few verses around so we can take verse 6 of chapter 3 and buttress it up to verse 1 of chapter 4. The promised rest is only found in the house of God built by Jesus Christ built with his body and with his blood. So in a similar manner whose house we are of verse 6 of chapter 3, is the promise of entering his rest through Jesus Christ. And we'll get to it here in a second. There's a gaping hole of, again, verses 7 to 19, which the author purposely, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put there. But the rest is in the household of Christ, who is the builder of the church. We rest not, again, as a reminder, not in the physical structure of the household of God or even the people in it, but the maker and sustainer of it, Jesus Christ. Again, Paul, writing to the Ephesians, he says this, Ephesians two nineteen to 22 Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles, And of the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. The language of the household of God points to Christ, the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Our rest is in the house of Christ. In the finished work of Christ. Let us not forget it. The name of Christ. Our faith is in Christ. It is in what Christ did for us. His perfect life. His death. His burial. His resurrection. And we often forget also his ascension where right now he sits on the right hand of God. Interceding for us. That fellow Christians is what our rest is. Is in. Now let's just pause here for a quick moment to gather just a brief background of who the author, which the author of Hebrews is not known. Some speculated, like Martin Luther, was Apollos. Some speculated that it may have been uh, the Apostle John. Others speculate that it may have been Paul. But the author's identity is not necessarily important. What is important is the message of the Book of Hebrews. The original audience, predominantly Jewish, was written to in Italy. And they had a difficult time getting past the law, Moses, in the first covenant. They thought that they had to have some work of salvation. If you continue along in Hebrews, you see where the author is making the case that Jesus Christ was the sacrifice once and for all. We get to the famous chapter of chapter 11 where the saints of old were saved by faith alone, even before Christ came. So we see this repeated pattern of them struggling, thinking they had to do something in and of themselves to earn salvation. And he's saying, no, the rest is solely in Christ. They, like humanity, the original audience, humanity as a whole, really, irregardless of who they are, whether it's Muslim or Jew I would even say whether it's Christian, they think predominantly that they have to have some work attributed to themselves to find rest. Again, it's a humanity problem. Being restless is the most unhappy, unsatisfying feeling in all of the world. Mankind is restless. I think Ecclesiastes, a beautiful book, is a perfect example of it. The writer, supposedly Solomon, had all the wealth, everything that he could ever imagine and desire at his fingertips. And he said, it is all vanity. Solomon had no rest other than in Christ. No, it is only in Christ. Jesus says these similar words in his prayer, Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. He says this, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you And learn from me For I am gentle and lowly in heart And you will find rest In your souls For my yoke is easy And my burden is light You can rest Knowing Christ fulfilled What you could not That is the law Of God perfectly And gave you What you could not produce, that is his perfect fulfillment of the law, his righteousness, and gave it to your account. The technical proper term of that is double imputation. Jesus Christ not only taking our sin from us, it would not be enough for us to get to the presence of God if he simply took our sin from us, we'd be in a nebulous state. We would have no perfect works. Not only did he take our sin but he gave us his righteousness his perfect fulfillment of the law summarized by Paul in 2nd Corinthians 5 21 so beautifully he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him the rest in God through Christ now We know what the rest is found in Christ. What is the result of the rest that is found in Christ? We see this not by looking back, but by looking forward to the preceding nine verses of chapter four. We who believe in Christ have entered the rest of God through Christ, the same rest which God entered on the seventh day of creation. It is perfect, it is complete, it is assured. Notice in just a few verses here, chapters 3, 1 to 6, we see David also speaking in verse 7 of chapter 4, and also the example of Joshua in verse 8 of chapter 4, three archetypal figures in the Old Testament of faith of righteousness and of godliness, yet nothing that they did or could do offered to anyone hope or rest. David, Moses, and Joshua far surpassed any one of us in here in their godliness, in their righteousness, but yet nothing that they had offered any one rest. We see in Hebrews 4, 8, He says this, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterward spoken of another day. This established not only the current promises that Christ finishes work on the cross. We're also indwelt by the spirit of God. But also it's a future rest that we, the people of God, have in eternity at the day of resurrection where we will have true and everlasting rest and peace with God for all of eternity. Now, don't get confused here. This rest does not mean laziness. As we can see from plenty of examples in the New Testament and Revelation, we're not going to be doing nothing. We're not going to be sleeping in until 12 o'clock, even though there will be no more time in eternity. We're not going to be sleeping in. We're not going to be dilly-dallying around. We're going to be worshiping Christ forever and ever. But that is the picture of rest that we have in Christ, not only now, but for all of eternity. And the author summarizes that here in verse 9 and 10 of Hebrews 4. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from those who rest in Christ have to work no more. They have peace with God. The final point, the final portion of verse one, chapter four. Really pertaining to the nominal Christian, to the to the to the unprofessing Christian, the word nominal really just means surface level. You have an economics nominal GDP and real GDP. Nominal GDP is just a surface level, brief look at what gross domestic product is. But it isn't until they take out the real stuff, like inflation and price increases, imports and exports, where you get the real number, the real GDP. And there are plenty of nominal Christians, surface level Christians. And this is the warning. Let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. And again, I said we would get back to verse 7 to 19 of chapter 3. As I know, it's probably sitting there glaring as a big abyss that he completely skipped over it. But here we are. Between the two advents of rest in verse 6 of chapter 3 and verse 1 of chapter 4 lies unrest and unbelief. As a warning of the peril of false assurance and insincere belief, particularly pertaining to the audience of the Hebrews, the writer takes a page, and example from the Old Testament to remind his readers of the perilous nature of nominal surface level belief. He gives the factual evidence to back up his claim. He goes back to the Old Testament. He goes back to Exodus and Numbers. Now, if you've already read for as my dad read for us, you'll realize that these were the group of people that had experienced the Exodus. They had seen the wonders of God as they came out of Egypt at the hand of Moses. These people had no excuse. They saw the goodness of God. And yet they did not believe. I think the New Geneva Study Bible titles this section, Wonderfully, they said, it's the wilderness wonders. They wondered in one sense of the word physically for 40 years because of disobedience. But it was a whole other thing of the wilderness wonders spiritually as they were wondering not only then, but for all of eternity. Searching for rest in unbelief. The author of Hebrews says this going back, looking to this example I'm not going to read all of it, but just going to take a test here. Verses 7 to 9 and then 11 of chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my house, my rest, which was built by my hands because of unbelief. Hebrews 3.12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And finally, to wrap it up, verse 16. For who, having heard rebelled, Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Verse 19, so we see that they could not enter the rest because of unbelief. These people, these wonders in the wilderness are of whom that could be said were church goers. They masqueraded themselves as true believers only to have dead and decaying tombs for hearts on the inside. They had all of the surface level characteristics of belief, yet their heart was far from God. Let us just remind ourselves here briefly of what the wilderness wanderers saw on their exodus. This is what they beheld with their own eyes. We see. Listen in Exodus and Numbers. The Lord sending quail. The bird from the sea. And then raining down manna from heaven. God through Moses. Made the bitter waters sweet. In the wilderness of Shur. How can you forget the crossing of the Red Sea. The destruction of Pharaoh's army. The ten plagues. Brought about Egypt. And the children of Israel were Spared but perhaps the greatest, most magnificent phenomenon of all that these children of Israel saw was at Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, where they're standing before the mount, and they get to see the refulgent majesty and glory and presence of God condescend from heaven and settle on the mountain. They saw the smoke, They saw the thunderings, they saw the lightnings, they saw and felt the earth shake. They saw the presence of God. Isn't that unbelievable? What would we do if we saw the presence of God? But these people, the wilderness wanderers, saw all the marvelous works of God. And what does it say? What does the Lord say to Moses tragically in Numbers fourteen eleven, The Lord says to Moses, how long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe in me with all the signs which I have performed among them? They saw all the promises and the miracles of God, yet they did not enter the rest of Christ. So for those of us here today that said, if I could simply just see the miracles of Christ, the goodness and the greatness of God, and I would believe you're sadly mistaken. You're lying to yourself because we have examples. I dare say that there are people here at Bible Chapel And let us put a caveat in that. Bible Chapel, an orthodox, doctrinally sound church where truth is preached Sunday after Sunday. There are people who have all the outward signs of conversion. They look Jewish, not in physical appearance, but they look Jewish, meaning in their practice. They have said and done all of the right things. Perhaps they have taken communion. They've been baptized. They attend church. They tithe, they volunteer, they have seen and experienced the goodness of God and the blessing of God, but their heart is far from the rest of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that if you take communion and you're baptized, in no way am I saying that you're not a believer. But those are not proof, full proof examples of belief in Christ. So I ask you, is that you? Is your faith like the wonders in the wilderness and simply what your eyes have seen and not in Christ? I ask you in closing, are you a wilderness wonder? Are you fearing your salvation? Are you searching for rest? Have you heard the news of Christ Seen the rest he offers Sunday after Sunday, week after week, yet you have spurned the Lord in your hatred of his goodness, which is supposed to lead you to repentance. I'm not only speaking of people who have not openly trusted in Christ, but those who have professed Christ in a fraudulent and nominal way. As the wilderness wonders in Israel. Every one of us in here should take a deep, hard look right now, this afternoon, and through the week. Are we really resting in Christ? Or is our faith nominal and surface level? I pray and desire for myself and every person in here that we would examine our hearts to see if our rest is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I pray you would turn to Christ because your place of destination is not in the rest of the house of Christ nor the peace of the promised land as we see here in chapter 4, the promised land that Joshua could not deliver. It's the promised land of heaven. That is not your place of destination but a place, as Jesus said, of weeping, gnashing of teeth, and unrelenting torment forever and ever. And Paul brilliantly, in Romans ten nine, summarizes this gospel, this rest that we can have in Christ. He says this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What I can tell you is there is rest, rest only in the house of God, which Christ built by, with, and through his blood on the cross. So as the Bible says, as, an, as I reiterate what the Holy Spirit has said to the author of Hebrews, sinner, Repent. And saint, those of us who are in Jesus Christ, may we rejoice and take solace in the rest that Jesus Christ has won for us on the cross. Let us pray. Our Lord, Heavenly Father, Triune God, what a blessing, what a privilege it is to be able to stand before you lord and to look into your word. My prayer lord this day is that there are no wilderness wonders in this audience that every one of us would examine our hearts to see if belief true and authentic is in the finished rest and work of Jesus Christ. For the unbeliever save them for the believer Lord, strengthen their faith in you, knowing that you will never leave us nor forsake us, and that we, through your Holy Spirit, will preserve until the end. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our rest, our house, and our hope that we pray all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me go ahead and read this in closing. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 He says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed a good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed, the only potentate, the king of kings and the Lord of lords who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light who no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. The Lord bless you. You are dismissed.